for folks to believe that, oh, it was all just about reversing Roe and returning this question of abortion's legality to the states. If you believe that, then you lack the imagination that the other side does. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, the podcast where we invite an expert guest to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Layla Darabi. And I'm Lori Edelman. For this special episode, we discussed reproductive rights and asked Professor Kiara Bridges, are we in uncharted legal territory? Layla, are you cringing or binging this week? Oof, there are so many things to cringe and binge, but I am cringing at this phenomenon of fake podcasts. Have you... Uh, been following the fact that there are people who sit, put themselves in front of mics and, and big armchairs and record themselves for TikToks to make it look like they're excerpting a podcast, but there's no podcast. I am aware of this phenomenon. I will not have it. I am annoyed. We put in the work and it must stop. But also, I can't <laughs> stop watching pairs of uh, of Gen Z people talking to each other in what look like rooms from the, the wing or other co-working spaces, just really fancy podcasting studios. So I think it's partly uh, equipment envy. The aesthetics of podcasting without the form. It's just like a post-post-post-modernism. I don't even know where we're at anymore. <laughs> well, let's not give them any more airtime. Lori, are you binging or cringing? I am binging this week. I cannot get enough of the woman who full body orgasmed at the LA Symphony's performance of Tchaikovsky's <laughs> Fifth. And I also cannot get enough around full body woman orgasm discourse. So there's now also debate, I guess you could say, about whether or not this was an orgasm and whether or not it's like okay or appropriate to name it as a public full body orgasm um, that was by all witness accounts fully in line with like a romantic swell in the music. So um, obviously we are pretty sex positive here at Cringe Watchers. So I'm going to go ahead and say uh, this is a good thing. There is audio. I want all of our listeners to understand and appreciate that there is audio of this. So you can go determine for yourself what you think went down. I think what I like about this story, which you sent me, I had not seen organically, is is the discourse. The the yeah. <laughs> the real detail in which in which the media and the social medias are, are picking this apart and must get answers. Uh, it's it's a great story. It's very on brand for us. And speaking of on brand, we are doing a special episode this week because there's just so much going on about something that we already know a lot about, but we also know people who know even more. So obviously, the Mifepristone ruling has and multiple rulings have been in the news recently. And we found, I think, a really wonderful guest to kind of help us understand not only these rulings, but the broader legal landscape around reproductive health and rights right now. And that person is Professor Kiara Bridges. And you might know her from a viral exchange that she had with an anti-choice senator during hearing where she testified about the end of Roe v. Wade uh, via the Dobbs decision. Layla, had you seen that clip before we had 
Professor Bridges on? I had. And it's part of why I'm very pleased with Professor Bridges, because she certainly has gone viral for uh, not only being smart, but being smart on the fly and really, really pushing back when questions are posed to her, which is something I wish more people did in the media and in the Senate. That's right. And, you know, we stand an intersectional queen on this podcast. And um, she in particular went viral for using the phrase people with a capacity for pregnancy um, in testifying about the importance of reproductive health and rights for all. And the uh, a particular senator really took issue with that in a very transphobic manner. And she called him out for that. Let's play a brief clip of that so all of our listeners can be on the same page. Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, There are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. We can recognize that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. I wish that I could think as quickly uh, while in the hot seat, but I think Professor Bridges really spoke for us all when she called out the transphobia in that person's line of questioning. I want to, before we dive into the interview, just frame for our listeners that while the, the viral exchange is about gender neutrality and language, the conversation that we invited Professor Bridges to have is much broader. And we really wanted to get a legal expert, a law professor, and a reproductive rights advocate to sit with us and talk about not just the attack of the day, but the broader landscape of legal attacks on access to abortion in this country. We know that the federal protections for abortion in the U.S. fell when the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade. Most recently, there has been an attempt to ban mifepristone, which is one of the two medications used in medication abortion in the United States. We don't get into the global context. It is true that you can do medication abortion with just one medication, the other medication, misoprostol. But That's not the point here. The point isn't uh, dissecting the minutia of how abortions happen. It's the fact that opponents to abortion rights are very methodically attacking access and uh, going so far as trying to ban a medication that the Federal Drug Administration has approved for decades, which calls into question not just abortion rights, but the integrity of our institutions and medical expertise in this country and who gets to make decisions about health, medicine, and rights. That's absolutely right. And I have to say, Professor Bridges just really has a holistic vision of this issue, and I really appreciated her for that. And you know, as I say to her in the interview, like her for president, I'm really a huge fan of her and the analysis that she brings. So uh, we really don't want to do too much introduction because the interview itself is so rich. um, And we just love what she had to say. And I do want to note, we got permission from her to address her as Kiara. So you will hear us describe and address her as Kiara, not Professor Bridges. We do have permission for that. So we hope you really enjoyed this interview. It's one of our favorites. And again, a topic that is 
very near and dear to our hearts, part of how we met each other and I think a really sweet spot for, you know, a sweet spot of expertise. So we're delighted to bring you this interview with Professor Bridges. Welcome, Kiara. We are so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. We're excited to dig deeper for many people. I think when their introduction to you on the world stage, there's little clips at a time, little segments with a certain senator in a Senate hearing. And without giving too much airtime to hate and ignorance, I'm wondering if you have a sense of why you've gone viral during the Roe v. Wade hearings. What do you think struck such a nerve with people about your heated exchange? Well, first, I think it was memeable, you know, like it was like a minute and a half clip. And um, that's kind of the attention span of a lot of, of the internet these days. Um, so it was it was easily digestible. Um, but I think substantively, what people hadn't seen, you know, and it doesn't matter where you are on the issue, I don't think that folks who are <laughs> supportive of the lives of marginalized people, as well as those who are uncomfortable by the lives of, of marginalized people, I don't think that um, we had seen just kind of like a direct defense of it, um, especially in such a forum, like in, you know, in the Senate, you know, Judiciary Committee hearing, it resonated with people who would like to see trans lives, you know, made visible and supported and respected and loved. You know, I think that it was it was appreciated by those. And for those who are uncomfortable by trans, you know, existence, those who would, you know, rather them, you know, die or live in the closet or just, you know, go away. They were made deeply uncomfortable by, you know, such a direct offense, an unapologetic, you know, direct offense of their lives. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today, and you got into this a little bit with the senators, because you're a law professor, and it feels like with all the attacks on reproductive rights right now, for the average person to keep track of state level laws, FDA policy, Supreme Court decisions, you have to be a legal scholar to to keep track. And so we, we wanted to get into that with you today. Sure, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about um, abortion rights and access. I'm happy to talk about reproductive justice more broadly. I guess there's a silver lining to everything. And one of the silver linings to the reversal of Roe is that you know, people are really, really uh, talking about abortion rights and access. And so what I've been trying to do is just broaden our conversation so that we see that um, these attacks on the ability to essentially uh, control the trajectory of your life, it's, it's part of a you know, a range of attacks on autonomy, um, bodily integrity, you know, living, living full lives. So yes, I'm glad to be here to talk with you guys about it. Thank you so much. And I mean, you said it, we're not just talking about abortion rights here. That's important. That's an important piece of the puzzle. But we're talking about autonomy. We're talking about reproductive justice. And we're seeing attacks on these areas coming from so many different directions at state level, uh, through federal court rulings. Now they're even attacking FDA approval. So it is really, uh, it feels that our bodies are not our own. And it also feels almost deliberately confusing. So many people probably right now don't even understand when and how it might be legal for them to access gender affirming care or dress up 
in a way that displays their gender differently from what would match their born sex. Like, is a drag ban, what does that actually even mean or look like? So it also these laws are having these chilling effects that aren't even necessarily quantifiable yet. So, you know, I'm just curious for you to just start us out. Just tell us, you know, how can the average person understand their rights in this moment? Where should they turn? What should they know? How should they educate themselves um, to sort of start to unravel and keep track of everything that's going on? What a tough question. Um, When you said it's deliberately confusing, I was like, yes, that's, that's absolutely it. So, you know, one thing about law, just as a general matter, is that a lot of times laws are passed and even the folks who pass the laws don't understand the scope of the law. They don't understand how the law will be interpreted. They don't understand how the law will be enforced. What we've seen, as you've mentioned, is it's just like a proliferation of these, you know, attacks on trans and non-binary lives, right? And they take the the form of, you know, bans on on gender affirming care, infringement on the rights of parents to care for their children. And I just want to sit there for a half a second, right? Because how ironic, (laughs) how ironic that the mechanism of these attacks on trans and non-binary people, the form of it is an infringement on parental rights. Because last I checked, the GOP was waging this war against so-called critical race theory that was using the language of parents' rights. Like parents need to have the right to be able to educate their children and parents need to have the right to be able to keep their kids away from, you know, race and LGBTQ folks and right. And so it was all about, you know, vindicating parental rights. In fact, the title of Florida's Don't Say Gay Law is something about parental rights, right? And so how ironic (laughs) that we are infringing the right of parents to care for their children by denying them the ability to get their kids the health care that they need, right? So the GOP is nothing if not inconsistent. (laughs) So um, if you try to reconcile those things, you know, it's folly. But yeah, so we have all of these, you know, attacks on trans and non-binary lives, on gender non-conforming folks, you know, gender diverse people's lives, and, and it takes the form of a variety of laws. And when you say, well, a drag show, you know, it's banned. We can't have drag shows. Okay, so can I, you know, as a, as a cis woman, can I like put on like a masculine type of suit, you know, and like, can I do that? How do you police it? You know, what about the status of gender neutral bathrooms? Like, are those things illegal? Like, so part of the uncertainty of the moment is the function of law. Like, we don't actually know um, how these laws are to be interpreted. We sort of have to leave them to be challenged and then interpreted in um, courts. And so where, where that leaves the average person is in a state of uncertainty. And as you mentioned, a chilling effect, right? So if you are risk averse like I am, um, you won't, you know, as a cis man put on a dress, right? Um, you won't as a non-binary person put on, you know, clothing or adorn yourself in a way that doesn't match with your, you know, sex that was assigned at birth. So, and, you know, part of that is, is, is the goal of the law, right? Is to, is to spark fear 
and in sparking fear to spark conformity. So the question that you posed was like, where do you go to find answers to these things? It's, I wish there was, you know, a resource. You know, the ACLU is doing wonderful work tracking these laws. Um, they're also doing wonderful work challenging these laws. Going to, you know, sources like that might be a way, a, you know, a way to a place to start. But it's hard to say that those are definitive, you know, answers to the question because I don't think we have any definitive answers to the questions. I know, but we're just going to keep asking you anyway. Because <laughs> yes, <laughs> especially because now I understand that you actually just speak in beautiful sound bites on very complex <laughs> issues. So we're definitely going to keep the questions going. Am I going to go viral again? <laughs> <laughs> One can only hope because we want right. to bring it back to abortion. And if right. we have any goal, it's to have abortion rights go viral. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so I think, you know, we've been tracking a lot of attacks on abortion rights lately in the U.S. Texas had this ban that was unprecedented. The Supreme Court knocked struck down Roe v. Wade. And now what we're trying to track, and I think the issue of the day, one of the things we wanted to talk to you about is this attack on medication abortion in the U.S. So the Supreme Court at the end of last month ruled, gave a stay to a stay, basically saying that FDA approval for mifepristone, which is one of the two drugs used in medication abortion in the U.S., can hold, meaning that the court that tried to revoke FDA approval of a long-established drug was not able to, or in the meantime, FDA approval holds. And I mean, this is just a whole new can of worms. I mean, as an abortion rights person working in global health, I've been tracking constitutions, I've been tracking court cases, penal codes, health codes, but drug approval being revoked is like a whole new uh, fields of health policy to for us all to suddenly become expert on. And I'm wondering, you know, the, the term like making its way through the courts gets tossed around a lot in the news. And I'm wondering, like, what happens next? What does that mean that this is now making its way through the courts? What should we even be paying attention to right now? It is my understanding, and I have to sort of caveat that with is my understanding, because as you've noted, like these things change all the time and the status of the litigation changes. But it's my understanding that the Supreme Court stayed the stay while Judge Kazmarek, a one lone federal judge and one just, you know, district in Texas, um, decided that he knew better. <laughs> I have to laugh about it. My God. OK, so anyway, he decided that he knew better than the FDA, the scientists, um, the experts who have approved this drug, you know, decades ago, he knew better um, that it was actually dangerous. It was actually not effective. Um, it actually, its availability threatened to overwhelm the hospital systems, thereby affecting every single doctor practicing um, in the country today. Although that had never happened um, in the in the decades since this drug was approved, but he just had a feeling it was going to happen. So he stayed the approval of this drug, and then the Supreme Court stayed the stay. So the approval remains good. And so where we are now is is trying to figure out how available specifically mifepristone is going to be um, in the coming years. Um, you know, when, when Dobbs was decided, when Roe fell, you know, it definitely felt like the sky was falling, but there was like this little like glimmer of hope out there, like this little corner of the sky that sort of remained, you know, hanging, hanging up there. And it was like the fact that 
medication abortion exists today and it just didn't exist um in you know 1973 and prior you know when we had criminal abortion laws and so like we we were hopeful that although physical abortion clinics might be forced to shutter um people would still be able to access health care in the form of pregnancy terminations in the form of medication abortion but now you know that is under attack and so we ought to be worried um, we ought to be worried because if medication abortion becomes unavailable then we will be removing a means for a safe pregnancy termination and thereby coercing people, forcing people to undergo unsafe methods of terminating pregnancies. And we know what that looks like. Right. And one of the methods that's allowed us to make abortion earlier and safer over the past decade. So we're going directly against the medical progress we've made for for the past generation. Absolutely. Absolutely. in in when you were saying that i was like well of course the forces of regression would be satisfied with neglecting progress <laughs> right because what they're trying to do really is return us to a particular like historical moment in this country i talk about this all the time and and, I, and probably the reason why i talk about it all the time is that i haven't i need to just write it out <laughs> and publish it but i feel that this when we look at all of these attacks together, right, attacks on abortion rights, attacks on trans and non-binary people's rights, um, attacks on education, attacks on like accurate histories. It's like how accurate histories of this country, like how do we link those together? Like how do we understand them as like part of um, an entire movement, part of a project? And for me, the project that all of these attacks are instances of or, or moments of is like this project of returning us to like a time in our country when very few people other than cis male affluent white you know able-bodied people just had the ability to be citizens right and to enjoy the privileges of citizenship and so this was a period in our life when oh my god don't ask me why but i was watching clips of gone with the wind yesterday (laughs) just yesterday it was, a, it was my first time seeing like clips of Gone with the Wind. Like I knew this the movie existed. I also knew that Hattie McDaniels, you know, won was the first African American who won um, an Oscar. But I was like, well, let me see this performance. And I actually laughed when Scarlett O'Hara called her mammy. I was like, it's not subtle at all. <laughs> it is literal. It is literal. Like this is a white fantasy of black womanhood. So that's what I mean. We're going back to a moment when black people could only move in spaces in certain capacities as mammies, right? As as Jezebels, as sapphires, as you know, not rights-bearing, you know, people. We're going back to a time when all people with uteruses, you know, were women. All women aspired to wifehood and oh my God, all wives were mothers. You know, all folks with penises were men and they married the women and they cared for the women out there in the world while the women could be at home cooking and raising these children. It's like this this imagined past, this really like nostalgia for this, again, imagined past that the attacks on trans rights and abortion rights and as you know so-called critical race theory like they're all part of like realizing this this moment in history that never really existed but people long for so badly 100 percent, and whew, i mean 
they say that our opposition is intersectional, so we better be too. And I think you've just effortlessly showed exactly, you know, how that looks and why all these things are deeply, deeply connected. And you also reminded me sort of the the days right after the Dobbs ruling, you know, we went as cringe watchers co-hosts and of course, concerned citizens to a number of, you know, protests and events. And I absolutely remember people going to the signs that had coat hangers on them and saying, actually, please don't have that here because you're spreading misinformation it doesn't we we have medication abortion now and it's just so ironic to to think back and know that the people who are supposedly pro life are literally trying to drive us back to your point to coat hangers so it's just really wild yeah i was just going to say i wrote an essay um prior to um dub's official release it was actually before the unofficial release as well um but it was called deploying death right and i was thinking about the ways that death will be deployed, you know, for political ends. And so I got into this piece about, you know, people are going to die, right? Like when safe, uh, you know, abortion is unavailable, people are going to die. And as I was going through the publication process, you know, the editors were like, well, that's not necessarily true. You know, we have medication abortion and da, 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 da. And so it's, it's kind of, funny and funny in a not funny way, but it's funny that we were so certain of, you know, or, or some of us were so certain about the continued availability of medication abortion, when it would seem to me that would be like the obvious thing to attack next. Like Dobbs is obviously just like the first step in a program of making abortion just completely unavailable in the US. Like for folks to believe that, oh, it was all just about reversing Roe and returning this question of the abortion's legality to the states. It's like you lack, if you believe that, then you lack the imagination that the other side does because the other side has always been about criminalizing abortion making you know this thing that they genuinely believe is murder making it unavailable in the u.s making it illegal in the u.s i think so, that's so, one of the most ominous things about the headlines with the supreme court staying to stay because so many of the headlines said for now Mm-hmm. And I think that mm-hmm. that is the caveat to all rights progress right now. Right, right. We have clung to this right for now. Right. And it's so clear that that the extremists in this country are not just coming for abortion rights. They're coming for all, quote unquote, recently obtained rights <laughs> right. and going back to exactly uh, what, what you're describing as this, uh, you know, uh, Hattie. Uh, the yeah. Vivian Lee era of <laughs> Civil War America, where, where the heroes, the heroes right. are, are are hearkening for a time right. before, and our rights are gone with the wind. Har har har. <laughs> okay. Well done. Well done. Yes. <laughs> okay. Let's get into this piece because I mean you've named it, but. I want to be like super explicit about this because we have been kind of one step behind in many ways in terms of anticipating where the opposition is going. And, you know, Layla and I talk about this a lot on and off the podcast about the why of that. But I think we both would agree that one of the reasons that we have always been one step behind is because of this failure to connect the dots and specifically to like name and properly account for race. Like that's just not been what the leaders of the movement for reproductive health and rights in this country have been preoccupied with enough. And, you know, in your work, you've written very clearly and very well 
about the intersections of these issues and especially the connection between voting rights and abortion bans in a way that's really fascinating and, and I think gets at some of these same things we've been talking about. So just wondering if you can say a little bit about that connection and sort of more broadly, what's the racial injury being inflicted in this moment? And, and why isn't this kind of better understood? Why can't we get ahead of this right, in the right. popular consciousness? Let me begin just by saying the abortion rights movement, which has always been about abortion rights, right? And therein lies one of the problems. That's number one right there. <laughs> like we've always been responding to really innovative things that the anti-abortion movement um, has conjured. Like, Kudos to them. Like, can we just give like a shout out to the creativity? I mean, master <laughs> communicators. Master communicators. And just like the imaginations, like their cup runneth over in terms of just like the creative ways they came up with in order to narrow the right articulated in a row, make it more difficult for people to enjoy this narrow right, um, and then to eventually, you know, lead to an increment. It was an incremental assault on, on abortion rights, um, which ultimately led to Dobbs abortion rights advocates have always just been responding to, you know, what they, they're trying to shutter clinics, let's stop them from shuttering, they're trying to do reasons-based abortion, okay, let's stop them from that, they're trying, right, and so as opposed to being like, hold on a second, like, how about we come up with, like, this vision that is about more than abortion, it's actually about more than, like, reproductive, you know, autonomy. Like this is about racial justice. This is about, you know, disability justice. It's about, you know, rejecting xenophobia, rejecting, you know, cis normativity, reject like like what if we come up with this vision and then work to like put it in policy, like work to put it in law as opposed to just always responding to what they were doing on the other side. Um and what I'm afraid of in this post-ops moment, I'm going to a conference next week where I feel like people are just thinking about arguments, you know, thinking about arguments that are specific to abortion. How can we get abortion rights back in the Constitution? How can we get abortion rights, you know, legislated as opposed to looking at this big picture? Like so many things are happening right now. Like, can we connect abortion rights to voting rights? Can and we can. <laughs> can we connect abortion rights to the separation of families that happened at the border that continues to happen, right, in low-income communities across the nation? Can we connect abortion rights to like coerced infertility because you're living next to a highway that spews pollutants in your neighborhood. Um, and so as a result, you can't, you know, conceive in the first instance or carry the pregnancy to term in the second. So it's like, can we do that? And I would I would much rather go to a conference that was about that <laughs> than about abortion rights. But just to, but just to connect it to voting rights, you know, um Judge Justice Kavanaugh wrote his concurrence, his sort of typical, it's not so bad concurrence. It's not so bad, you guys. You guys think it's bad, but it's not so bad. Let me tell you what we are doing and what we're not doing. What he said was that all they are doing is returning the question of abortion's legality to the states. And so, you know, if you want abortion, you just got to kind of, you know, convince your state legislators and, you know, just, you know, door to door knock, you know, convince people to respect your autonomy, <laughs> your bodily integrity. And, you know, Lisa, <laughs> may I have some abortion? 
<laughs> Basically, just, you know, Justice Alito says the same thing in his majority opinion. He says something along the lines like, yeah, okay, yeah, women, you know, were part of the body politic in 1868, which is, you know, the, the sort of definitive moment of constitutional interpretation, according to this version of originalism. He's like, you know, yeah, women, yeah, they weren't, they weren't voting or anything, but now they can. You know, in fact, he says, you know, women vote more than men. So, so important to women. Go ahead and, you know, so what these arguments um, obscure is like the dramatic retrenchment in voting rights that are taking place across the country that the Supreme Court has greenlit and has permitted. We can go back to, I mean, some folks would go back even further to the court permitting gerrymandering, in fact, encouraging gerrymandering, as long as you sort of frame it as political but not racial. You know, that was a... a, Shaw versus Reno. I start in my scholarship with um, Shelby County versus Holder, which was in 2013. That was when the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Justice Scalia essentially said, racism is over. And all you little kids talking about racism still exists. Shame on you. You are the racist. And actually, that wasn't Scalia. That was Roberts. I don't know why I misattributed that to Scalia. But yeah, Roberts essentially said, you know, racism is, you know, so yesterday. <laughs> Racial equality is so today. And so we don't need the Voting Rights Act of 1965. At least we don't need the pre-clearance requirement. What that has permitted, like all of these things that we hear about in the news, like the voter ID laws that make it really difficult for low-income people to access, you know, IDs that they need in order to vote. The the closure of polling places like conveniently in communities of color. So it's like, you know, you won't be able to vote at that, you know, church anymore. We closed it. The only one you can go to is across town. And now there's like a two hour wait, right? All of, you know, the restrictions on absentee voting, the restrictions on mail-in voting, the voter roll purges, all of these things were made possible by Shelby County versus Holder. And so it's kind of laughable for me. I giggle um, when I think about people assuming that these abortion bans like really actually represent the will of the people in a state. Texas has passed a near total abortion ban, right? It's laughable for me to think that that abortion ban represents like the will of, of Texans when Texas has the most restrictive voting laws like in the country. These laws are not expressions of like democratic will and they're not they're not the result of like democratic processes. They are marginally democratic at best. And I'll tell you the folks who did not have a voice, like who did not manage to cast the ballot in an election, it's the people of color. It's the low income people who disproportionately rely on abortion services in the first instance. So what if we connect those dots, right? And we see that voting rights, which is, you know, First of all, it's just essential to democracy. <laughs> it's a misnomer to call the U.S. a democracy if like large swaths of the population can't vote and the, and the large swaths that can't vote have been targeted because of race and, you know, the likelihood of supporting a particular candidate. But like it would be great, right, if our movement connected the restrictions on voting rights, the anti-democratic sort of <laughs> impulse uh, that the GOP has been interested in with these abortion restrictions, with these, you know, coerced birth, with enforced infertility, like it would be great to connect those dots.
Yes, it would. My goodness, a whole word. And there's a whole course that I feel like needs to be taught if it's not already, maybe it's by you about the connection between like the strength of our democratic institutions and, you know, sexual reproductive health and rights, if that's like the vertical that you're really focused on, because it's not just this issue where they go hand in hand. You know, we see this in the global arena as well, which is where Leila and I know each other from in global health, you see this as well, where once the democratic institutions start to weaken, there's kind of clear tells there about where things are going next. So very alarming. And directly related to the openness of civic space. So the, the, the people's ability to debate is directly linked to our rights being taken away, no matter mm. where we are in the world, which I know goes unsaid for, for us, but just to, to put a fine point on it. But this is what we're seeing in this country, where we're seeing... Uh, you know, not just people not being able to vote, but but the silencing of even the questions and we're being talked down to even in Supreme Court decisions. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think we only have one or two more questions for you. I'm so appreciative. By the way, like you for president. <laughs> I just am loving. I'm just so appreciative of your analysis. I'm like, if I had had a professor like you, it really would have gotten me here a lot quicker because I feel like I had to <laughs> put pieces together on my own. If I could just jump in and just say, but you got there. And like that actually gets me, <laughs> that gives me hope because I'm from Florida. Like I grew up in Florida public schools, right? Like, so the same schools that like, you can't say anything about, you know, anything less than like celebratory about the racial state of the nation. And oh my God, don't talk about trans people. And oh my God, you know, don't say that, you know, loving somebody of the same sex is actually a normal expression of human sexuality. But I got here, right? So that's kind of gives me hope that these bans and these, you know, regressive sort of, you know, pieces of law, you know, notwithstanding that truth is truth, right? And so hopefully people will arrive there sooner. Rather than I love later. that. <laughs> I hope it's sooner. I really yeah. do. <laughs> And, you know, I'm all about the, you know, Black feminist scholars, especially. Another cringe watcher's favorite scholar is um, Jennifer Nash, who has informed this show probably more than she knows. But actually, when you were speaking about, you know, some of the ways that, you know, where the abortion rights movement kind of just hones in on abortion, it's, it's a crisis all day, every day, and we don't have that time for a vision. It made me think of Jennifer Nash's work and how she kind of breaks down how the crisis rhetoric that is done on the backs of Black women doesn't translate into actual progress on the issue. And I mean, she's looking at it from about Black maternal mortality, but it, I think it's relevant for this moment too, where sometimes that reactive and crisis mode actually contributes to the entrenchment of the issue. And, you know, it actually, you know, corporations can benefit from it. Oh, we've taken a stand and take these shallow steps and then we're, we, we don't see progress. But, you know, I think Layla has a question for you about the, the future, the future baby lawyers, and then we'll go to our cringe fire. What my favorite part of your viral moment was the reference to your, your own class and your own students. And I'm wondering, since you, you have direct access to the next generation of, of attorneys and, and legal policy experts and, and Supreme Court justices, hopefully, it must be a wild time to be a law professor. How is the next generation doing? And are these issues important to your students? Do you do you have faith that they're going to take this forward? Oh, my goodness. I said that, you know, it gives me hope that, you know, I got here, you know, despite the very intentionally narrow education that I received in Florida public schools. What actually gives me hope 
my students. Absolutely. I've learned so much from them. Like, I definitely feel like I have shared knowledge with them and taught them a lot, but I have benefited so much from um, being with them. It's interesting, you know, you talked about the viral moment and the trans and non-binary people who are closest to me in my life are actually my students, right? So I was defending them. I have no worries about the future because they're fired up. They're mad as hell. They're smart as hell. When I started in the academy, I was like left, 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 you know, like, oh, I'm all the way over here and then nobody's you know, with me. I'll be over here. And then now and sometimes in conversation in my seminars, I don't think I've moved anywhere, but I start feeling like conservative. Like I start feeling like, you know, like the law, you know, there is a, there objective law is possible, right guys? Like it's possible to be neutral, right? More, right. And they're like, listen, politics, you know, law, it's a false dichotomy. Like, so <laughs> what I'm trying to do in my, my classes as well is like not discipline their creativity. Like I want to teach them how to think like a lawyer, right? Absolutely. Think like a lawyer. I want to teach, I want to, you know, teach them to see all, all sides of the issue, but I don't want to discipline their rebelliousness. I don't want to discipline their passion. I don't want to discipline their creativity because that's actually going to um, help us, you know, all like think our way out of the narrow constraints that we currently, you know, live in. The kids are all right. They really are all right. And I really thank them. I don't thank them as often as I should, but I'm so grateful to be able to exist in their presence and to learn from them and to maybe give them like a little drop or two of, you know, of some, some facts, some knowledge here or there. <laughs> so uplifting. You have now reached the portion of the interview that we called the cringe fire. Okay. I hope you're ready. I hope so too. <laughs> do some stretching. Okay. Get yeah. ready. <laughs> I do have my Hamilton sweatshirt on. So let me, what would, you know, Eliza Schuyler do? Okay, this. <laughs> A good motto in life. <laughs> okay. Moving to our cringe fire. Is there a show that you are binging right now? I am. This is so nerdy. Um, uh, but my husband and I are uh, like watching. It's this British show called The Thick of It. <laughs> it's Ooh. so good. I'm listening. <laughs> I don't even know like when this show started to be produced. All I know is that we stumbled upon it. It's like about politics, and it's just so smart, and it felt feels to me like realistic <laughs> in terms of. There are just no like allies, like no true allies in politics. Like it's just kind of a doggy dog world. And, you know, your friend is only your friend today and so your enemy tomorrow. Um, it's very funny. I watch it with subtitles because the accents be thick. Um, but <laughs> but I, I, we are definitely binging that. Maybe it's the same writer as In the Loop. Have you seen the movie In the Loop? I haven't seen that. Okay, so this is something that I'll put on my list. I think that show was such a success that, that okay. this British movie broke into U.S. Okay. cinema. Is there an issue in society today that you are finding super cringy? So is there an issue in society that I'm not finding super cringy at the moment? I'm finding cringy the middle ground position that people 
like the New York Times, for example, are trying to take on like trans rights and existence. I don't think there is like a, a middle ground, like some things are not both sides. Like, well, there are some people who believe that trans and non-binary people are human and some people don't. And I just don't think there's a middle ground. It's kind of like there's no middle ground for like slavery. Like, well, should some people be enslaved? What did they do? I don't think there's a middle ground with the Holocaust. I don't think there's a middle ground with native genocide. Um, I don't think there's a middle ground when it comes to should we support and love and respect and value gender nonconforming people? The answer clearly to me is yes. Absolutely. And I just really liked ContraPoints on YouTube. Um, on she, she did a video, The Trials of J.K. Rowling, that mm. talks about this really well. That was mm -hmm. my recent mm -hmm. uh, my recent binge. Okay, I'll have to take a look at that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see better portrayed in the media? Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe because we've been talking about abortion so much and just in this conversation, but also just like also <laughs> in the world and in, um, in this socio-political moment, I think abortion can be portrayed, you know, much better um, in the media. Like people have different relationships to their abortions, you know, um, some for some it is a difficult decision at which to arrive um for some it is sad for some you know for others it's the most joyous of occasions an easily arrived at you know choice um so for you know i wonder what acknowledging that sort of multiplicity um of experience I wonder what effect that would have. I'm sure, you know, folks would weaponize and it'd be like, people are flippantly, you know, coming to these decisions. Whatever we say will be weaponized. But I think it might help to reduce the stigma and, and the unnecessary suffering of people who discover they're um, pregnant when they don't want to be, know that the best choice in the world is to terminate their pregnancy and then rejoice at having terminated the pregnancy. Um, I think that we need to make space for those experiences as well. Definitely. And finally, uh, is anybody doing it right? Do you have a favorite scene depicting sex or sexuality in TV, film, literature? Michaela Cole, she's doing it right. Whatever she's doing, she's doing it right. I will destroy you, snatched my wig, refused to give it back. I still don't have it back. I had to get a new wig. Um, like, it's just such a, the scene where um, she's gonna have sex with her, her boyfriend. I think he was her boyfriend at the time and she's like on her period and, our bodies just not have, they haven't not been portrayed. Like there's certain aspects, like even in 2023, right? Like we have periods, <laughs> right? And, you know, although like tampons and pad commercials like show us jogging with our ponytail <laughs> bouncing, like it's not always like that. Um, and so I just enjoyed, uh, well, anyway, hard to say enjoy, but that, entire series, I Will Destroy You, really was impactful for me. And I really loved the way she portrayed sex and sexuality and non-consent and the various modes of non-consent in that television program. And I, and I can't wait to see what she does next. Please be doing something next, Michaela. I need you in my life. <laughs> I've been tracking everything. I think she's actually going to act in other people's stuff next. So okay. I'm, I'm really looking forward to her as yes. a performer, but her, her writing voice is 
Yes. It's so, so wild. So good. So, so forceful. Yes, absolutely. This this has been incredible. I feel like I learned so much, but I didn't feel like I was at school. So thank <laughs> yeah. you. You are just so great at breaking down really complex, what could be dry, wonky, tune it out topics. And uh, the reason we wanted to talk to you is because we're desperate for people not to tune these things out. And, <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you well, so much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, I love talking about this stuff. Clearly. It was also really fun talking to you guys. You <laughs> as well. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guest, Professor Kiara Bridges. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. DL Dallas Engram created our original theme song, and you can find him on SoundCloud. You can support Cringe Watchers by visiting patreon.com backslash cringe watchers. Patrons get special access to extra content and advance invites to special events. You won't want to miss it. Subscribe today for the cool perks. You can also show us your love by rating and reviewing the show on the app on which you're listening to the podcast, following us on Instagram or Twitter at Cringe Watchers, or just in general, shooting us a note and telling us that you're listening. Thank you for cringe watching with us. <laughs> <laughs>